This is the Nuance Podcast by Medicine Explained. We're your hosts, Amanda and Dan. We talk to experts on health, the human experience, and the intersection of climate and human health. We explore the nuance that's been lost in today's conversation. We don't take ads because we want to keep our information unbiased. But we do need your support. So leave a review on Apple or Spotify. And share with your friends or on social media. In today's conversation, we speak with Dr. Mark Milstein, PhD, who is a scientist, speaker, and author. He received his PhD at UCLA. He specializes in taking the latest breakthrough research and presenting it in a way that empowers people to keep their brains healthy, boost productivity, and maximize longevity. His book, The Age-Proof Brain, provides actionable tips to get the best out of your brain each day and lower the risk of dementia. In this conversation, we talk about how neurological diagnoses like dementia intersect with mental health disorders. We talk about the heart and brain connection. We talk about how stress impacts our brain. Dr. Milstein gives us actionable tips for our everyday to protect our brain and optimize our brain health. He's a wonderful communicator, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Now, onto the podcast. Hi, Dr. Milstein. It's great to have you on our podcast. Thank you so much for taking time and um, chatting with me all about brain health. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. So I would love to just jump into a little bit of an intro. First of all, like, what do you do? Um, We already recorded a bio, but I love when people kind of describe themselves, have a little one-liner. And then what got you interested in brain health? Yeah. um, So my training is is, as a scientist, um, and I really focus on taking cutting-edge studies, um, all these amazing new discoveries, and trying to break them down and distill them down into usable, actionable steps. Um, there's just so much being discovered and there's also a lot of noise out there, you know, th- things that are being, you know, reaching the front pages of websites or blogs and trying to get down to what is actually accurate. Um, what are things that we can use? Um, and so that's really, um, my big focus, uh, through, through speaking and writing, um, and, and really analyzing the latest studies. And then, um, I got into brain science, actually, I was at UCLA and I was in a lab, um, actually doing cancer research and, there was a, a group of, of us that was um, studying breast cancer, and it was there was another group that was basically studying neuroscience because the same protein that was involved in breast cancer and signaling was also involved in learning and memory. And it was just around the time that the understandings of brain science was really exploding, and there was all this like fa- these fascinating new insights into how we can really take care of our brain, you know, how to, how to sleep better because we're understanding how the brain works when it's sleeping and how memory works. And so my, sh- my focus really shifted um, to really this like revolution in our understanding about brain health and, and how we can take this, this information and use it. And that was really, that's really what that turning point was. I love that. Um, I mean, obviously, at Medicine Explained, uh, my purpose and Daniel's purpose is to make science and and health understandable because we get so caught up in it in academia and we don't realize that it isn't being translated to the general public. So thank you for what you're doing. I also was just on my geriatric rotation and I actually did my final presentation on um, the importance of sleep and insomnia in the geriatric population and the, the consequences on brain health. So 
I, I love what you do. <laughs> yeah. So th- you um, mentioned some pretty staggering statistics at the beginning of your book, uh, The Age Proof Brain, including a 114 increase rise in Alzheimer's disease in the past 30 years. And some people argue that it's, you know, the aging population, that's why we see an increase. But what are some of the factors that are really contributing to this uh, increase in Alzheimer's and dementia? So it's, we believe it's multiple things. Age plays a role. Um, when we're living longer, that increases the risk of memory loss, dementia, Alzheimer's. Um, but also it's multiple factors. So we think that heart health plays a big role. Um, and we'll t- I know we'll talk about that, but heart health plays a big role. The risk for other underlying conditions like diabetes, insulin resistance, prediabetes, all these conditions can impact brain health. Also, toxins in our environment, pollution, um, these things play a role. It's not one factor, but it's the combination of these factors over time um, with genetics, with lifestyle factors that are increasing the risk. Um, But really the big take-home message of the book is that we see clearly now that we can lower risk back down, that there are things that we can do based upon lifestyle that can bring the risk down for Alzheimer's, dementia, anywhere from 30 to 60%. Um, and we do see these changes in risk factors or in terms of uh, incidents based upon people's uh, lifestyle factors. So really the book is about the hopeful side of it, that there's things that we can do and we want to get this message out and this information out because if we don't over the next you know, 20, 30 years, the rates will go up much, much more as people are living longer. So we just want to make it the, the, the lifespan as healthy as possible um, during these years. Yeah, that is a very hopeful message. Um, when I was during my neuro rotation in medical school, um, I felt like when people were diagnosed with these things that uh, it was kind of almost like they were never reversible. And that was kind of the way that the the doctors approached it because we hadn't seen some of the science come out. So that's really exciting. And I I was wondering, uh, this is one of the, the questions that I had later on, but I think we can jump into it now. How do you assess your brain age and how can uh, your lifestyle affect it? Yeah. So Definitely, we have the the ability to do brain scans, but not everybody needs to go jump into a brain scanner at this point. It's not realistic. It's not necessary. Um, you know, if somebody has an underlying condition, they have a family history, they're seeing changing and changes in symptoms, then definitely they want to see a neurologist um, and dig deeper, and that might be appropriate. But it's just important to be aware that the brain does change as we age. Starting at the age of 40, the brain can start shrinking, basically um, losing some of its mass about 5% every 10 years. And that shrinking can have a devastating impact on the brain's ability to function, productivity, uh, memory, focus. But we clearly see, as we just talked about, that we can slow that process down. And some things to think about in terms of brain age um, are just asking yourself some questions and... Uh, I love a good uh, acronym, so I'll, I'll use the word brain. And if we just take a, the first letter of uh, of that, you know, B-R-A-I-N, and we think about a question we can ask ourselves to assess our brain age or our brain health, the first is B, and we can start thinking about balance. How's our balance? And, and at first we might think, oh, that's, is that connected? But, you know, our, our balance is controlled by our brain. And as we get older, we can lose the ability to, to, to have optimal balance. So just thinking about, you know, am I doing things that are challenging my balance and, you know, not overwhelming, but, you know, am I, am I doing yoga? Am I doing Pilates? Am I doing playing some sports? Um, because we really see clearly that as balance goes, brain age follows. 
it could be, you know, one or the other. It could be the brain age is causing balance to, to go or balance is causing brain age to go. But we want to just assess that and be aware of it and do everything we can to, to mitigate it and, and really be on top of balance. Um, R stands for recall. <laughs> and, you know, we live in a world where everything that we want to know is at our fingertips and our phones. But memory and recall is a, a use it or lose it skill. So just thinking about taking some time during the day and just saying, you know, how is my how is my recall? Like, you know, it's hard to remember a phone number these days. <laughs> it's hard to remember, you know, your to-do list or your, your, your grocery list. So just taking a moment and saying, you know, I'm actually going to do a trivia night or I'm going to, I'm going to try to remember some lists. I'm going to challenge my brain and not just totally rely on looking things up all the time. And, and am I seeing any changes in my ability to recall it? That's an important assessment to take too. A stands for assessing your day. And so it's normal, you know, as we get older or just as we're busy to forget to pay a bill or miss an appointment, but we just want to be aware that things that we thought were normal in the past in terms of the aging process are more red flags now. And we want to say, let's get on top of this now. Let's not just say, oh, that's just part of the aging process. There, There's mild cognitive impairment, and it's much more common than we thought, especially starting around the age of 60, 65. And it's just these warning signs that, you know, forgetting appointments, forgetting to pay a, a bill, forgetting things that we didn't forget in the past. And if that's happening with increasing frequency, and we want to be on top of it. So just be, you know, open to assessing how things are changing in, in your day, in your ability to run your day. And then I stands for intensity of walking. And so we have all this data now that your your walking speed plays a role in your brain age. And if you walk 30 minutes a day, it doesn't have to all be done at the same time. There's all this interesting data that you lower your risk of memory loss by about you know 60%. It's pretty staggering. And studies even came out a week or two ago that five minutes, 10 minutes of just some walking faster, just like some intensity to your pace of walking can improve memory. So we just want to be aware that walking is so important and how your walking speed is. You don't have to power walk everywhere you go. You don't have to go that far, but just some intensity to your walking is good. And then N stands for thinking about the number. And what I mean by that is how old do you feel? Because there is a mind-brain connection here. And we see studies where people, if they say they feel younger than their age, their brain looks younger in a brain scan. They're oftentimes doing more, you know, youthful activities. They're oftentimes more social, playing sports, uh, you know, dancing, doing all these things that are so good for your brain health. So just taking an assessment of how old do I feel and what can I do to make myself, you know, feel feel more youthful. There's nothing wrong with aging. Aging is, is can be a wonderful thing in many ways. We just want to do the things that we can to get the best of both worlds where we're gaining experience and wisdom, but we're also just keeping our brain as healthy as possible. So I don't know if that was way more than you wanted to hear, but that's a, a nice little assessment. You can test yourself tomorrow with B-R-A-I-N. No, that's perfect and very easy to remember. <laughs> um, awesome. And then, so you did also mention at the very end saying that your mind and your brain are connected. So how old you feel is correlated with how your brain looks. So kind of along those lines, um, there's an intricate link between neurological diseases and mental health. So how are these intertwined and how does one affect the other? Yeah, this is a, a big insight that we've had just in the last year. And it's that something that we have to put in perspective with what's happened in the last couple of years. And so we've seen the rates of anxiety and depression 
uh, go up significantly. I mean, there's some studies that suggest that before the pandemic, for example, the rates of depression were about eight and a half percent in our country. And at certain times during the pandemic, those numbers reached 33 percent. And so it's not only critically important for day to day wellness and and our our mental health, our mental state, which is so important, but how it ties to long-term brain health is a new big insight. And so we're seeing that if conditions like depression and anxiety aren't treated effectively, if they aren't managed, then they raise the risk of memory loss or dementia down the road, even decades later. And individuals with unmanaged depression and anxiety, if we we look at these studies, they tend to develop memory loss or cognitive loss uh, dementia about five and a half years earlier than the general population. And so the reasons and the links are probably multiple reasons, everything from, um, you know, essentially that in those states of anxiety and depression, there is over time, if these conditions aren't treated properly, there's damage done to the brain. It also, just being aware that those conditions impact sleep, they can impact uh, socialization, they can impact treatment for underlying conditions, taking care of oneself. And so it's definitely, it's always many things. It's not just one thing, but really the take home is that we just want to be aware that the same things that improve our mental health, improve our long-term brain health. And we, we have very good treatments for these things. And we just want to be on top of them and just do our best to address them and talk about them, raise awareness, you know, lessen the stigma um, because it's important now and it's important down the road. Yeah. Um, as a family medicine doctor going through my training, um, almost everyone comes in with some complaint of depression or anxiety. And so even uh, almost on every patient now on the intake, um, we're doing PHQ-9s, which is a, a screen for depression, and GAD-7s, which is a screen for anxiety, because a lot of people are, are facing these issues today. Yeah. And I like what you were saying about reducing the stigma and just talking about it more because it isn't just you experiencing it. There's there's a there's a mass issue um, going on here. And so along those lines, you said that addressing mental health can help with uh, long-term brain health. So what are some other lifestyle factors that can help prevent um, dementia or cognitive impairment down the line? Yeah, so we're seeing that the the lowering the risk comes from optimizing our sleep which is a big one. Um, you know, th- it's so fascinating what sleep does for our brain. Um, when we're sleeping, we're basically making our memories that are stronger. So anything we learn during the day, uh, we make a connection in our brain, between our brain cells. And at night, we find those connections and we make them stick and we make them stronger. So essentially, at its essence, if we don't get a good night's sleep, we're missing out on making those memories consolidate or strengthen. So sleep is so important. And over time, if we're sleep deprived, that can have that devastating impact on memory. We see that individuals with sleep apnea, if it's not treated effectively, often lose their memory significantly earlier than people who don't have sleep apnea. And then, you know, we could basically spend hours talking about how important sleep is for brain health. But I find one of the most amazing things that people might not have heard about is that when you're sleeping at night, you're basically washing your brain at certain parts of the night. Um, it's called the glymphatic system and your brain squeezes out, basically squeezes out trash, waste and toxins that build up throughout the day. And if you think of your brain like, you know, an apartment or a house, if it's too messy, if there's too much trash left around, it's hard to focus, it's hard to find things. Same thing with your brain. Um, And so sleep is just an opportunity to remove this waste and garbage and trash because as we get older, that process can become less effective. So sleep is something we can control. Um, We can optimize it. We can make it better. You know, it's not going to be perfect every night for many people, but the more nights that we can get a good night's sleep, the more we can basically keep our brain cleaner 
<laughs> and, and optimize its health. So I'd say sleep is right at the top of that list. Um, it's something that we can do. It's hard to hear in residency after doing a 24-hour shift. <laughs> right, right. So naps, naps can be good uh, and, and doing everything we can to, um, you know, it's it's also leveraging other things too. So, you know, we want to get the word out that, and you know, you know, it's something that you're talking about too, which is so great is that sleep is important. But on those days that, you know, the reality of things that we have to do, how can we, you know, what can we eat? What can we, how can we exercise? How can we manage stress? So we can try to think about leveraging the things, other things we can't control, but we do want to think about sleep for, for short and long-term brain health. Yeah. Sleep is linked to so many things. Like even after one night of bad sleep, you can have some sort of insulin resistance. Yeah. Um, yeah. but also that can be kind of stressful to get perfect sleep every night, but, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, no sleep is so important. And, um, th- I was also wondering a little bit along the lines of sleep, what is a regular night sleep? Because I think that, uh, I, I read Matthew Walker's book on, um, I think it's called why do we sleep? So the importance of sleep. And he was saying that the average amount that an adult sleeps has decreased in the past decades. So how much sleep do we actually need? What should we be aiming for? Um, and of course, again, not with perfection, but what's, what should our goal be? Right, right. Yeah. And and that is a a key point. I'm glad you brought that up that if we're shooting for perfection or for, if we're, that can make us stressed out and worried. So one of the things that I always like to talk about is that you actually wake up throughout the night. Normally you sleep in a cycle, you not, you might not be conscious of all these awakenings, but it's okay to wake up. It's part of the sleep cycle. And we just want to be aware that we want to do things to get back to sleep and not, not, you know, freak out, not be like, Oh no, I'm not getting my brain washed. I'm not washing my brain. I'm not cleaning it. Now I'm even more stressed out. We don't want to have that happen. So it's okay to wake up. Um, for the general population, for adults, it's, you know, the numbers shift around, but it's generally anywhere between seven and nine hours a night. Um, less than seven, some people can do that and be just fine. It's just a really rare, small yes. segment of the population. Um, it's based upon, we believe, some genetics, and these are called short sleepers. Um, I just want to make sure if you are getting less than seven that you're, you know, you're passing every, you know, physical, uh, physical parameter or, or cognitive test. You're not feeling exhausted um, and you're not, you're not seeing any, you know, health issues. Past nine is also a red flag. We want to be aware that there's such thing as too much sleep. It can be okay for some individuals, but it can raise the risk of things like depression or there might be an underlying reason that someone's needing this amount of sleep past nine that we want to look into. Um, somewhere between seven and nine, and we can talk about ways that you can kind of figure out where you are within that range because it's a big range. Um, but, but that's the, for adults, that's the general range. Yeah. Perfect. And, um, what are your bedtime routines? How do you get a perfect amount of sleep? <laughs> yeah. So I'm naturally not a good sleeper. And I think that's why I'm so interested in this. Um, I, I have to do these things or I pay for it. I lay there in bed. I'm like, Oh, I didn't, I didn't follow my own advice. So I really try um, because I have to, I have to, I'm not one of those people that, you know, just like you see them on a plane and they're like sleeping or I'm not one of those people at all. So I have to, I had to, I had to dig deep into the science to figure this out for myself too. Um, and the things that I do, I would say the, one of the most important things I do is I start preparing for my sleep in the morning, uh, the morning before the night. And I, and there's all this really fascinating research that you basically have this brain clock that starts a countdown that helps you sleep. It's your super charismatic nucleus. And if you get outside in the presence of natural sunlight, soon after waking up, you 
basically help this this mechanism count down to sleep. You put it in motion. And so what I've found is that by getting outside in the morning into some natural light, that really does help me sleep at night. And that's one of the most important things. So I actually think about my sleep as a full day, um, not just the hour before. Uh, but then I also think about really getting some good exercise in throughout the day. And then an hour before bed, I, I try to put my phone away, try to turn it off um, because the phone is highly addicting and the light coming from it is um, uh, stimulating to the brain and can throw off the brain clock into thinking it's daytime and suppress melatonin. So I really try to be careful with my phone and put it away, get it out of reach. <laughs> so it's nowhere near, so that I can't get to it. Um, I find if I can get to it, I'm going to check it. So I, I get it away as far, far away as possible. And then uh, I think about the temperature of my room. I, there's this evidence that cool rooms can be very helpful for inducing sleep. And if I, if I, um, if I'm having my mind race, I try to make to-do lists about the hour before in the hour before bed and practically just, you know, list the things I need to do and then tell myself these things are safe on this piece of paper and I'll deal with them in the morning. And I know it sounds a bit silly, but there's all this evidence too, that if you kind of offload the information that can wake you up at two in the morning that you're worried about and you just tell yourself it's safe, I'll deal with it in the morning, your brain will very likely let go of it and not wake you up with it in the morning, in the middle of the night, um, I should say. Um, so I would say those are the three things that I really try to focus on is temperature, get the phone away and offload information and let go of it before I go to sleep. That's so interesting. I actually hadn't heard about that list making before. Yeah. Um, I, I, my mind races in the morning and I get really excited to like start the day and then I'm like all over the place and I found making lists really helps to concentrate me. Yeah. Um, but that's a great tip at night too. Love that. Yeah, yeah. I'm a um, big list maker too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Always things to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you mentioned a little bit about stress earlier and that you don't you want to avoid stress. Um, how does burnout and stress affect our brain health? Well, it's okay to be stressed. That's actually an important <laughs> message. It's a, it's okay to have some stress. Um, we actually see that um you know, we've been told so often that stress is bad, but we want to actually be engaged and ha want to get things done and want to have things on our to-do list and, and have the feeling of, you know, uh, crossing them off. That's all good. But we're just living in a world where stress never ends. Um, it's just too much too often for many, many people, understandably. So thinking about how can I have some stress in my life and just take a break from it. Um, and so how that relates to burnout um, is that burnout is that feeling that you just with high levels of constant stress, you've reached the point where even things that you love to do, you don't want to do them anymore. Really, that's a kind of a basic, simple definition in, in something that you know can have many different um, definitions. But the idea is, is that it's a real concern because it, it can raise the risk of other health conditions. It can raise issues with heart health, brain health, because it's all very much connected. So that, that stress that in a burst or in a moment, that cortisol, which is actually very good for our brain and can be helpful for our memory, if it's released all the time, that cortisol too much too often, it can damage aspects of our immune system. It can throw off our ability of, of our immune system to be balanced. That cortisol can shrink if it's constantly being released, shrink parts of our, our hippocampus or memory parts of our brain. So over time, if we're in these higher states of you know constant stress where it reaches that threshold of burnout, then that can do damage to our heart, to our brain, our, our immune health. So we just want to be aware of it, especially in these times where, you know, we're being pulled in a lot of directions and we're being uh, thought, you know, there's a lot, there can be issues with boundaries of when is it time to 
turn your phone off or take a break or or take a take a, a bit of a vacation or if it's a sabbatical, um, you know, even if it's a weekend that you can say, I, I just need to I need to really disconnect and I need to recharge. It really is important because over time, um, these these high levels of stress can be damaging, especially if we just don't take a break from them. And how do you control your stress? <laughs> Me personally? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, one of, so um, putting my phone away is, is a big one. Taking breaks, surrounding myself with people like um, I have two daughters and uh, my wife and, you know, really trying to go and do something that is just simple and fun. So, um, you know, walks. I take a lot of walks. Um, I try to get doses of nature. Um we have all these studies now that like 10 minutes in nature, lower stress levels. So I try to do anything I can to get a dose of nature most days. Um, I, I play tennis. I play, I play, I, I, that's a big obsession of mine <laughs> and a, a stress relief. Uh, even if I'm playing bad, I let the stress go. So I don't, <laughs> I don't let it bother me. Um, and then music is another big one for me. I love, I'm a huge music fan and I, um, I try to, I try to just like have music as part of my day and take time to really listen and enjoy music. So it's, these are all mindfulness moments. You know, that word can feel very um, new age or mystical to some people. Some people are all in on that word and they embrace it. But mindfulness really is just, if we're talking about their stress from every direction too much, too often, mindfulness is just a moment to focus on something you love to do and be in the present moment and take a break from all the stress. And that could be, you know, watching your favorite sport or listening to your favorite music or being with people you enjoy doing a puzzle, reading a book. If you're in the present moment, you're enjoying it. That's mindfulness. And there's also the breathing exercises, which focus on nothing but your breathing. And that allows you to take a, a break. And I do those things too. Um, at certain moments during the day, if I'm feeling like, you know, there's just too many things piling up and too many, too many um, things on my to-do list from too many different directions. And even the studies have showed like, you know, just a moment here, a couple minutes there, a couple minutes here or there, focusing on nothing but your breath going in and out. What you're essentially doing is just being in the present moment. And a lot of our stress is thinking about the past or the future, but in this moment, stress levels tend to drop. Um, and so it's just a really, really simple, you can do it anywhere, anytime type of activity ex exercise. And those are the things that I, I try to utilize. I really like those. Um, and one of my favorite tips or tricks that I learned uh, recently is that when we're looking down at our phones or at our computer, which is where most of us are doing work, our eyes are very focused in and it's more sympathetic. So that your sympathetic tone, which is, you know, your stress, your fight or flight response. And if you look up at the horizon for a couple of minutes or even just a minute, it allows you to look farther and then your eyes um, turn into the parasympathetic so yeah. that you have the rest and digest. And so it helps to bring down the stress level, which I thought was just very doable because I'm at the computer all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a great one. And it makes sense in terms of evolution and, you know, it, it makes perfect sense. So that that's interesting. It's a, I, I love the small things that make a big difference that we can just kind of grab onto moments here, moments there. Yeah. And the parasympathetic and the, the sympathetic, the stress um, and the fight or flight or the rest and digest is also uh, related to your heart. So I would love to talk about the, the heart and brain connection. How are they related? How do they respond to each other? Yeah. So I'm big into like fun facts. So I, I uh, <laughs> I would say that one of my favorite fun facts is like your vessels and veins, just in one person, if you could lay them end to end, they'd go around the earth more than twice. And it's staggering and astounding to think about that. Um, but if you think about your heart as the engine that gives fuel to your brain, 
with every beat of your heart, you're sending a quarter of your blood supply to your brain, even though your brain's only three pounds. And even little dips in the oxygen um, uh, delivery to your brain can impact your memory that moment and down the road. And so we have all this, this interesting data that's, that really shows us that our heart health is really impacting our brain health. And many people who have issues with cognitive function, one of the root causes we see um, is uh, an issue with blood pressure, an issue with cholesterol, an issue with some aspect of heart health, a stroke. Um, so this is an area where we have really good treatments for heart health. We just want to leverage and take advantage of heart health. We have good lifestyle interventions. And so we want to just say, these are things we can do, we can be on top of, we can test for, and thus we can protect our brain. And just even starting in our 30s, we now know that blood pressure impacts our brain health decades later. And somebody who has a blood pressure of like 110 over 70 um, is less likely to have memory issues like 20, 30 years later. And so we really see how um, we just want to do these things, you know, at any age, but be on top of them early too, because it's just a direct connection. Heart health is, is a major part of brain health. That's why certain diets are so good because they're really heart healthy diets and that impacts our brain health too. So a lot of this is um, prevention because you don't want to act on brain health. Like when you're already feeling some of these yeah. memory issues, how, <laughs> so this is just kind of more for my interest, but how can we incentivize more preventative measures? Because in the medical field, like I'm giving out, you know, Lipitor, so statins that helps with heart health and brain health. Yeah. Um, but that's after someone has a, a, a bad reading. So, but that's, that's in what insurance pays for. So how can we start to focus more on the prevention side? Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that part of it is talking about it. The awareness of the things that you're doing, the, the videos and the podcasts is really important. Um, and also, I think that you know, one of the best rewards is how you feel when you, when you do the things that make, that are good for your heart. So it just, you know, talking about and having people experience and saying, you know, the way you're feeling it. it so you're, you might be feeling better or feeling good when you eat a certain way, that's because of the food. Or, you know, if you're, if you go out and you take that walk or you play a sport and you think about what you're doing, you know, that relationship is that you are making your heart more effective and efficient to supply oxygen to your brain. So I think those things are really important. Awareness, talking about it, making the connection of how you're feeling. Um, because oftentimes when people start, you know, eating a certain way in terms of their heart and brain health or exercising, then when they don't do it, they're like, oh, I noticed the difference. I really see this difference and I want to make sure I get back to that feeling um, that's so beneficial. And then also I think that there's, you know, room in the conversation for, things that are being used now, experimentation of, you know, certain numbers of steps people take and maybe helping with their insurance premiums or things like mm -hmm. that. I think those are all good things. Um, I think apps can be used for, for benefit in terms of rewarding people for, um, you know, taking part in healthy habits. But part of it is, I think, just the awareness and the, and the feeling that you're getting and then wanting to, to keep that feeling of, of feeling good because of the things someone's doing. Yeah, we have to become a little bit more intuitive and yeah. listen to our bodies and yeah. see how we're feeling because you can't always um, see them in numbers. And at the beginning of uh, the conversation, when you were giving your introduction, you said that there's a lot of um, noise out there. So there's a lot of science um, that isn't being translated to the general public, but then there's a lot of headlines that can be confusing. Yeah. So what are some of the most recent headlines or noise that you wish to debunk? 
I think where I see a lot of it is in the supplement world, you know, uh, mm-hmm. people coming out with their, their magic mix or their, their magic supplement. And I'm not saying that supplements can't be used if somebody has a deficiency um, and under the care of a physician who's, yeah. who's going to be able to say, you know, based on what you need and we're going to first, you know, try diet first. If that's not working, we'll use certain, um, you know, someone's deficient vitamin D or B12. But those are obvious, you know, of course, u- useful utilizations, but this idea that take this mix to help you sleep or take this mix to uh, to help you get more energy. And I, I think that that's, these things aren't tested. There, there's very little evidence that they work. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of, you see these videos that have like millions of views um, for people pushing supplements and all of a sudden they're selling things. And I think that that's concerning. So we just want to get the word out that those things really want to push towards, um, it's very specific for an individual if needed and if not needed, these things can do more harm than good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's so it's such a nuanced conversation too, because supplements can be really helpful. Yeah. But you always want to see um like who's making who's benefiting from it. Like are people making money off of it? And um the supplement in- industry also popped up in um kind of like contradiction for taking too many like medications, but it's the same thing. You're still like not doing a lifestyle intervention or a diet thing. You're still just popping a supplement versus like a drug or medication. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. They can be, they can be great if needed, but just this idea that it's some sort of like everyone should be on this supplement, um, is concerning. Yeah, for sure. So we talked about the heart-brain connection, and another organ I want to throw into the mix is the gut-brain access. And there's been a little bit more talk about this than there has been in the heart-brain connection. Um, but do you mind telling us why gut health is so important for brain health? Yeah, it's definitely a two-way street, and it's emerging. Um, definitely some marketing that's jumping ahead of the science there too, but <laughs> a lot of really great science there as well um, in terms of basically what's happening in our gut does impact our brain. And a key way to think about this or just, you know, something to keep in mind is that, you know, the food that we eat, it gets down in our gut and there's all this bacteria down there (laughs) um, that is basically eating the food. It's, It's helping us digest it. And good bacteria eat certain types of food. They eat whole natural foods, um, fiber, nuts, vegetables, things like that. And they can release factors into our bloodstream that are anti-inflammatory. They can help make vitamins. Um, they, they just basically do good. <laughs> they, do, they do a lot of good for us. But there's also the bad bacteria. And so there's populations of bad bacteria that feed, up, feed on the ultra-processed ingredients, um, the foods that like never spoil. You know, I always talk about the Twinkie that's in a museum in Chicago that they unwrap from the wrapper like 15 years ago, and it looks great. <laughs> Those are the foods that we're just concerned about because... They're the additives, the preservatives, the good back, the bad bacteria, I should say, the bad bacteria feed upon those. And when they feed upon those types of foods, they grow in population. And so there can be a, an out of balance between, you know, too many bad bacteria and they can release inflammatory factors that get into the bloodstream and they can make their way to different parts of the body or the brain. And so what we're seeing is that a big aspect of brain health is really our immune system. And our immune system is, you know, of course, designed to protect us, fight off, you know, dangerous bacteria and viruses and things like that, foreign objects, foreign bodies. But the idea is, is that the immune system can get confused. And instead of um, dealing with things that are dangerous, it turns on our own body. And we're very much aware of this in terms of, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, the immune system attacking the joints. But we also see the immune system can attack the brain. 
And that can have a significantly negative impact on memory, on raise the risk for depression. It plays a role in all these factors that we didn't know were related. And now we know that if we want to optimize our immune system so that it's not overactive and not attacking our brain, we work backwards and we realize that a lot of our immune health or inflammation comes from our gut. So that's why what we're eating can impact our brain health because we just want to eat things that if we think of inflammation like a fire, we want to put that fire out. We don't want smoldering fires. We don't want to fan flames. And certain foods like the ultra-processed ingredients or too much added sugar can cause inflammation in the gut that can then spread throughout the body into the brain. So that's why when people, you know, we, we realize immune health, inflammation is so important for brain health. And a key part of that is what we're eating. And no matter what diet camp you're in, just eat whole foods. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's yeah. It, it, it's diet is so complicated so quickly. And, you know, it's, aspects of it are individualized. But one tenant is if you just stick to whole natural foods most of the time, you're so, so ahead of the game. <laughs> so you're doing a huge, huge bonus for your brain and your gut. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you were saying that some of the marketing is like <laughs> a little bit ahead of the science. Yeah. What science uh, for brain health specifically are you most excited about? Where do you want like research to go? Where Where do you want to see studies to to focus on? Well, I'm I'm definitely excited about medications on the horizon that can be used uh, appropriately, and we're seeing some momentum there in terms of brain health, which I'm excited about. But I'm also super excited about. The, the lifestyle factors, just learning more about what what are the things that we can do to optimize um, all the things that we're talking about. And I and there's more, you know, there's more to be learned. There's more, we, we've identified diabetes, heart health, um, gut health as three big ones, but there are other factors as well that I, I believe are out there that we, that we just need more data on. Um, being aware of our environment, uh, you know, we're starting to learn that the health of our planet is impacting the health of our brain and that there is a connection here between pollution and brain health and and toxins and we're learning so much more about this so i i would say that i'm excited about the balance and the utilization of medications on the horizon with early detection and lifestyle factors you know started early and and maintained throughout our life i know that's a lot but <laughs> those three things working together no, I love that. And I really am happy that you brought up the environment. I've I've worked on a lot of like climate change advocacy um, yeah. and a really good book too that I recently read is A Terrible Thing to Waste uh, by Harriet Washington. Yeah. And that's about you know, like air pollution and climate change, just like toxins and yeah. the effect on brain health. And it's, it's very fascinating. And so I'm really glad that you brought that up because there is a lot more research coming out on how like even climate change, air pollution, all of that is affecting our health. And then the IPCC report, that that uh, panel, that like that intergovernmental panel of all of these countries that come together every year, the for the first time they were talking about mental health in their last report and how the climate and mental health are related. So yeah, yeah, I think when um, it's so important, and when people realize, you know, your brain is like right here at the top of your nose. So anything going in your nose in terms of what, what we're breathing is impacting our brain. And so um, it brings it all, you know, brings it all home in terms of how important the health of the planet is for the health of our brain. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And lastly, we ask all of our guests to finish the following sentence. The future is blank. 
Um, I'm going to use a word I just used a few minutes ago. I would say super exciting. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm super excited about um, where this is all going and how getting it, the information out and utilizing it and seeing, um, you know, I, you, you, I know you see it and, and you see it in people, individuals who say like, I'm doing these things. I'm optimizing my sleep. I feel better. Um, and just getting that message out and thinking about how we can impact more people now, as opposed to, I think what you mentioned is like waiting, waiting for, you know, years from now or decades from now, how we can do these things now. I love that. Thank you so much. And thank you for being the translator of science. Um, I think it's very important and you're, you're very good at explaining things. It's, it's articulate, but understandable. So I really appreciate that. Oh, thank you for all you're doing. And I appreciate you having me on. Awesome. The opinions expressed on this show are those of the nuance in medicine explained and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of their places of employment. The opinions expressed on this podcast are meant for entertainment and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified board-certified practicing clinician.